Welcome back to the State of Play podcast. It's episode 16 today, 1-6. I'm rejoined by the one and only Matt Santangelo. Matt, how you doing, man? I'm doing pretty well. You know, same old stuff. I usually begin every podcast, I feel, with uh, my well thoughts and well uh, being. But um, no, I can't complain, really. <laughs> what have you been up to recently? Uh, working, uh, working, working a little bit less, taking a step back from writing a little bit, um, just to kind of uh, gather myself a little bit more busy at work and um, with the international break it's kind of uh, I know how uh, most of our listeners by now know that I'm not too much of a fan of international break uh, I just get worried about injuries and all these different things flu which is something that's going around uh, Polish national team camp apparently um, yeah, but yeah we, we didn't we didn't say we'd speak about that but apparently is it someone's got swine flu or is yeah so the, I was telling a friend of mine who's actually uh, at the gym he's actually Polish as well and he was pretty much saying like we were talking about you know Manchester United he's a United fan and on the topic of uh, strikers with their situation I talked about Milik and you know I talked about uh, Fabian Ruiz from Napoli the uh, Spanish international who's having a great season for them uh, how he kind of had a, a swine flu issue this past week and it seems as though maybe uh, Milik and Zelinski probably brought that into the national team and it looks like it's kind of spread across uh, uh, many of the players you know Piontek is coming under the weather as well and uh, I read something that the national team coach was uh, made mention of that so it's going to be interesting to see how Poland uh, field uh, versus Latvia in their Euro qualifying match but yeah it's just kind of one of those weird situations and weird stories that Again, lumped in with injuries you just hate to talk about because obviously, but Piontek, you know, Milan need him desperately to be in top form, come right out of the international break, uh, firing on all the cylinders again. So we're going to have to kind of see how that uh, plays out. But uh, yeah, it's kind of been one of those international breaks for me. I thought it. Was, I thought swine flu was a thing of the past. I'm not going to lie. Uh, yeah, like it's it's weird. Like I saw it. I'm like swine flu. That's like 2014. Like why are we 2013? You know, like I don't know why we're talking about it. like Ebola. Like you know, what I'm saying like I remember there was that going around too. But it's uh, yeah, it's it's a weird weird situation to say the least. And I know we're going to probably have a uh, international break heavy uh, episode on our hands. I think. We are, we are. We'll probably get started with, you know, the respective teams that we follow, aka England and Italy. Uh, I know, you know, we've we've obviously got spot, uh, soft spots for Kosovo and Poland, respectively, as well. But we'll start with England. Uh, Raheem Sterling hat-trick, proving the haters wrong. Uh, we've got uh, Jaden Sancho as well, with a debut played all 90 minutes. Callum Hudson-Odoi becomes the youngest ever Englishman to uh, make his debut in a competitive game. Uh, exciting times for England, Matt, or are we overhyping this again? No, I, I think if you're an England fan, a fan of English football, and football in general, I think you really should be excited to see England have a lot of these younger players come through the system, come through the ranks, and you'll get those those starting minutes that they deserve. Obviously, Caleb Hudson-Odoi is a, a player that uh, our former guest, Alex Goldberg, loves so much and uh, is always petitioning to get more minutes for on Twitter. Shout out to Alex, our uh, former guest Chelsea fan. Uh, sensational work by him but when you throw in the fact that they have Raheem Sterling who uh, has been a, a main player for the national team for quite some time really since you know his the tail end of his Liverpool career uh, it's it's a long time coming for him and I'm, I'm happy to see a guy like Raheem Sterling get the, the that hat trick yeah I believe he was the he's the only player be, I, don't, I, I saw a stat somewhere I'm not gonna try to botch it here but to see a guy who gets so much hate from the media uh, racist chance you know which seems like once a month to show up for his nation and to put in great performances, much like what he has been doing uh, for for the better part of the past couple months, 
uh, it's great to see. And then, as you just mentioned with Sancho, a, uh, a, a, a starlet type talent, a player that uh, looks to be possibly a generational one uh, for England moving forward and a real gem for Borussia Dortmund. So, uh, up front, England got to like the, uh, the, op- the uh, options they do have. And uh, I know you tweeted something out on Twitter yesterday. Uh, pretty much saying that everyone's trying to give credit to other managers, Pep and Klopp and whoever, for the way Gareth Southgate has his English team playing. And I think it's a, a little bit disrespect to Southgate, in my opinion. I know you would agree on that, is that he did really well at the World Cup. You could see he the, his he started to kind of implement his, his philosophies, his way of playing, and it's starting to catch on, and it's really looking uh, quite quite beautiful in my opinion as, as an outsider no one really does, has a stake in the game here but when I'm looking at England from the outside perspective I, I'm very excited to see what the future holds for the national team because uh, for many of those players the sky is the limit. It certainly is and Gareth Southgate's done a, a great job there and I think he should take full credit right I mean the English media would be on his back if he wasn't doing a good job so I think it's only fair that he gets the credit because oh, he's absolutely. doing a good job. I think in that tweet that, uh, that I mentioned um, Guardiola didn't get credit when Germany won the World Cup in 2014, even though he was managing at Bayern Munich, right? So I don't think now that uh, Southgate is doing a great job at England, um, it, it should be the same kind of thing. I mean, he was the under-21s manager, we all know that, and he's come up uh, and he's brought through some of those guys that he worked with. You know, we've seen Joe Gomez flourish. We've seen, uh, obviously, you know, Rashford, uh, Kane, formerly from the under-21s. Obviously, now you've got Sancho. Kind of, he's really giving youth a chance. and We're playing football the right way currently. And I think there's just a bit of a newfound belief. I mean, you heard Wembley was quite loud during the game, even though it's kind of a a nothing game against Czech Republic that you expect England to win, you know, 99 times out of 100. It's... It is definitely an exciting time and with so many options going forward as well as at the back, you know, I mean, you look at Joe Gomez, Harry Maguire, John Stones, these are centre-backs that are either playing at the top clubs at Europe or they're coveted by the top clubs in Europe. So, and full-backs as well, you know, Kyle Walker, um, Ben Chilwell, Kyle Walker's at Man City, Ben Chilwell is probably going to move to a big club in the summer. It's the whole team is currently either uh, at a big, big club competing at the highest level or going to be competing. At James the Madison, level. another one. You know, another guy mm. who's at Leicester doing really well. and A guy that didn't even make the squad, right? He right, yeah. So it, it, it goes to show you when you, you... I think you can get an idea of the health of a nation, uh, and I like to apply this with uh, the Italy national team as well, is when you don't see what the actual uh, call-up list is, but you see who is snubbed. We see that so many times with France. We're like, how does this guy not make the squad? Oh, yeah, that's right. They got Mbappe. They got um, all these different names in the attack. And then the midfield, you're like, oh, how did this guy not get called up? Oh, that's right. They have these three, these four or five midfielders. And it just goes to show you how, how things have changed with the uh, England England uh, setup since really that, that 2014 World Cup. Obviously, they had some younger players at that World Cup. But, you know, when you, when you, you look back to where they were, you know, uh, less, around a decade ago, less than a decade ago, you feel like you, you're you're way past the years of the Emil Heskies of the world. And, and all these different guys were like, all right, we have a lot of young talent that we could be excited about. But as you just mentioned with um, uh, Kyle Walker, Stones, guys who are playing at the top clubs. And this is the really the prime of their career. So if you're an England fan, you really got to be excited about where England stand uh, you know, during this Euro qualifying phase and heading into, um, you know, down the line, of course, with the World Cup coming up in a couple of years. 
Yeah, yeah. And on the other hand, Matt, uh, Italy didn't have that bad a uh, a day, did they? 2-0. Uh, Moise Keane with the goal on his first ever start. And Nicolo Barella, which is, uh, you know, spoiler alert, the guy that you're going to be profiling later in the episode with a goal as well. So why don't you talk about uh, a slightly new look Italy team? Yeah, so with, uh, under Roberto Mancini, the one thing I've noticed, um, the one, or at least the one of the biggest things that has stood out to me, is it seems like with every international break, he's always giving one or two additional youth players an opportunity, right? It feels like uh, Federico Chiesa, who uh, before yesterday, of course, because uh, Chiesa's been injured, he was sent back to... Uh, Fiorentina for a little bit of a checkup to see what's going on. I don't think it's anything serious, but it looks as though he probably won't be featuring for Italy during this break. He's giving opportunity to those young players that you know maybe Ventura or uh, Conte really weren't uh, years and years ago. And then again, Chiesa up front, you're starting to see Nicolò Barella was the second one who got that start um, in, alongside Marco Verratti and Jorginho in the midfield. And then, as we just mentioned, Moise Kane, who, who we profiled in the first episode way back when, and we talked about his situation, which uh, it's a little plug there for you guys to check that one out. But everyone, it feels as though there's always one or two new additional young faces getting the opportunity, and that's the one thing I really got to give uh, Mancini credit for, is he's not afraid to give a guy like Moise Kane, who isn't starting games regularly for Juve at all. He hasn't played much at all this season, but when he has played, he is scoring goals, and we saw what he was able to provide to Italy's attack yesterday up front in that 4-3-3. That, that you know, edge of the, um, on the edge of your seat type ability when he gets on the ball you're like this guy can make one or two guys miss he can cross the ball in he he's good with both feet he's quick he's energetic he's exciting to watch and Italy hasn't had many of those players in recent memory uh, so it, it's really refreshing as a as a Missouri supporter to see a guy like Moise Kane get his first goal to excite he was probably the best attacker in my opinion for Italy yesterday and then as you just mentioned who I'm going to profile later on in the episode uh, Nicolo Barella gets his first goal as well Mil- uh, Italy's not Milan I'm hoping he's Milan midfielder very soon but um, Italy's best midfielder yesterday again a very balanced guy who, who can play in my opinion across the midfield guy who can charge forward assist in the attack uh, he, he brings a little bit of everything he provides that, that balancing factor that balancing key uh, to help Ferrati and Jorginho in the midfield so uh, definitely exciting times for Italy I think overall the performance wasn't uh, as sharp as many would have hoped and I would have hoped uh, there were times where they maybe missed a couple opportunities Federico Bernardeschi a player who had a great second leg versus Atletico Madrid uh, he, he sometimes t- tends to overcomplicate things. Uh, he, of course, yesterday he was wearing the number 10 shirt, which is a heavy shirt to say the least. Um, but yeah, overall, a, a 2-0 result for Italy. They go top their group in Group J. Uh, their next match, uh, Euro qualifier at least, is against Liechtenstein. So I'm curious to see what Mancini does for that game. I think he's going to uh, tinker a little bit. He maybe give uh, Spinazzola, again, another guy who for Juve who had a great second uh, leg versus Atletico Madrid. He played a couple minutes yesterday, so uh, I'm curious to see what type of formation he runs out for that second game. But regardless, uh, it Italy fans should be a little bit more excited about the future because with Kane, with Barella, with uh, Chiesa, Cutrone, Donnarumma, Romagnoli, who we didn't get to see yesterday, who uh, many are calling for to get more minutes, uh, there's a lot of young players coming through the ranks, a lot of young guys who are ready to uh, take the torch from the old guard, and, or at least the last remnants of the old guard, and really carry Italy back to where they need to be. Yeah, alongside that, you've got um, Zaniolo. And, right, Zaniolo, uh, yeah. I, I've other centre-halves that are kind of uh, coming up through the ranks for um, 
for Italy as well. And, you know, the likes of Jorginho and Insigne, for example, aren't old. No, they're in the prime. As well because, and I saw a lot of people that I follow and that you follow kind of talking about Immobile being, you know, someone that hadn't been doing too well for the for the national team and, and maybe calling for the likes of Balotelli, etc. But <laughs> Fabio Quagliarella, right? Who had a great yeah, game quite, yesterday. Yeah, yeah. But, but these are some of the guys, you know, in uh, Immobile, uh, Insigne, Jorginho, who are kind of playing at the, the peaks of their careers. I know Romagnoli is kind of getting to that point there now. Um, but a lot of the, the team and, and the squad are kind of in that 25, 26 age bracket or younger that are kind of breaking through now. And, you know, we don't have to mention and talk about Keane, uh, Zaniolo too much because everyone knows about them and they know they're going to be, you know, part of the Italian national team for the next 10 years. But it's, it's exciting to see that there's more optimism now rather than criticism for the Italian national team similarly to, to England. Right, yeah. And there are certain areas of the Italian national team that do need to be sorted out. Uh, the striker situation as you just alluded to, that's kind of up in the air at this point. Uh, we saw obviously what Quagliarella was able to do in front of a familiar crowd who obviously he played with, uh, played in front of uh, many years ago at Udinese and he, he looked very sharp. He looked at the, pretty much the same striker we've seen all these all season long at Sampdoria, but he's 36 years old. The fact of the matter is you don't anticipate him being a, a guy that's going to lead the front line at the Euro, but again, you never know if he's the guy who's scoring the goals uh, for club and country. Uh, I think Mancini has to go with the hot hand at this point, but uh, you really have to look into the striker situation and the fullback situation uh, as the two key areas that Italy really do need to sort out. Uh, Pacini and Beiraghi, uh, who are decent players. I don't think they're the solutions that start the starting uh, fullbacks, left back, right back, of course, uh, that, that Italy need or that really Italy require moving forward. I'm hoping that Leonardo Spinazzola uh, gets and wins that job moving forward, and then they got to find another uh, fullback to kind of round out that defense. But I think the skeletons there, the nucleus there, and the foundation overall for a strong Italy heading into, again, the Euro 2020 is there and intact. It's just going to be a matter of where Mancini sees opportunity for others to get minutes and others to convince him that they deserve a spot. Mm, certainly so. Certainly so. And uh, Matt, I know that it is international break. And uh, even though we, we both talked about how we, we dislike the breaks being this long and taking us away from club football, uh, the old Ronaldo versus Messi debate sparked into life again because both of them scored hat-tricks very close to uh to each other in fact i think ronaldo scored you know the the crazy hat-trick uh to, to bring his team back from the depth since we spoke to uh marco marcina and messina in the, in the last episode who wasn't too optimistic about juventus and i think we were both kind of saying come on marco as long as you've got ronaldo you've got a chance and lo and behold he, he scores a hat-trick and then from then on i think uh messi went on and scored a couple of goals got a couple of assists against leon at home and then he went on scored uh, an outrageous hat-trick at Real Betis away, the, the, the third goal being uh, quite something. But what what do you think at the moment? You know, there's it seems to be that like whatever you say on Twitter right now, you get slagged off for it. So if you say Ronaldo's the GOAT, people will come at you. If you say Messi's the GOAT, people will come at you. If you even say, guys, we should just sit back and appreciate both of them. We're so lucky to have them at the same time. You get <laughs> you get taken the piss out of. So what what do you, what can you say to, to remain on the right side of Twitter these days? For me, first off, uh, I'm sorry to disappoint any Team Ronaldo fans. Ronaldo is the GOAT fans that are listening. But for me, Messi is the superior player, the player that I think is the greatest of all time. And I'm not just really looking at goals 
goals. I think, you know, Ray Hudson of BN Sport, uh, you know, he's, he calls so many Barcelona games on BN Sport. He's, uh, he's so energetic. He, uh, He's called the Verbal Gymnast, if you check out his bio on Twitter. Uh, fantastic voice for football, and he was pretty much saying that Messi's more than goals. If you look at some of the things he's able to do with the ball at his feet um, throughout throughout an entire season, throughout his entire career, you can't really just say, well, you know, he has less goals than Ronaldo, or he doesn't score the, the goal, uh, doesn't have the international trophy that Ronaldo has right now, of course, the Euro. Messi is one of those players that I look at, and I'm like, he's doesn't have the size, the strength, the physicality of Ronaldo, but he's tooth and nail and he's neck and neck right with Ronaldo pretty much every season in goals. And if you look at his goal assist production this season, Messi, he's above Ronaldo. And for a guy who's so small, um, he doesn't always dazzle. When, I mean, of course he does dazzle, but he doesn't do like the, the rainbows and all these different like three second gift spots that we see on Twitter with other players. But he's so good and, and people are so respecting of him with the ball at his feet that just a simple body faint, a simple lean, he's able to get that additional space, that additional time and progress the ball forward to get in those positions to do exactly what we saw, as you just mentioned, that great chip towards the back post that had the entire Real Betis crowd just honoring him and, and praising him because, again, he is a, a once-in-a-generation, once-in-a-lifetime type player. So. For me, I, I don't see them as comparable players so much in the fact that they do have different roles. I guess you could look at them and say, well, they're both top goal scorers for their clubs and they always have been. I understand that. But one's a 5-6 type playmaker who just happens to be such a great goal scorer. And then there's another guy who's like a physical freak who is probably one of the best headers of a ball I've seen in, in my lifetime and a guy who just scores clutch, clutch goals. So... If, look, I, I'm not a Real Madrid fan, I'm not a Juve fan, I'm not a Barcelona fan, I'm a fan of football, and for me looking at it, I'm just happy that I've had the chance to witness both these guys at the same time. I mean, not, not many people get to have the opportunity that we have to watch Messi and Ronaldo go back and forth on a weekly basis, scoring goals and constantly being compared. So, um, yeah, football is just, it, it's so special to have, it's so special, of course, we all know that, but having these two guys uh, at, the, at the heart of it, at the top of the conversation as um, you know the two best in the world right now. Uh, it's it's going to be weird when both of them retire, right? When we don't have Ronaldo and Messi yeah. around to say to have these conversations that we obviously sometimes are very painstakingly annoying to go about, uh, you know, interacting with on Twitter. But at the same time, you're like, ah, oh, there's no Messi, there's no Ronaldo. Like those are the types of guys that, regardless of where they're at, you're always going to have an interest of where they're playing, when they're playing, and what they're getting into. The real winner is football. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna try. Absolutely. I'm gonna try and like not fight Ronaldo's corner, but just kind of talk about him as a player as well, because I think I, as an Arsenal fan, felt the the real brute force of Cristiano Ronaldo when he was in the Premier League, and I think because it was so long ago now people tend to forget just how good the guy was, right? He scored 42 goals in a season while playing in the Premier League. Not 42 goals in the Premier League, but in the whole season, that season, he scored 42 goals, which is crazy. I mean, some of the goals he scored in in, in Premier League, the Champions League run that, uh, that uh, you know, United ended up winning uh, that final, scoring in the final against Chelsea, um, and then moving to Real Madrid and, you know, during a time where Guardiola was so dominant with Barcelona, it, it, it was a tough time for him. And he still somehow managed to win every single title that he could win there, including obviously uh, three Champions Leagues, which is what Real Madrid fans want the most. And I think it's one of those things where 
you know, last season he 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 won the the third Champions League, and everyone's kind of like, okay, look, how can we not call this guy a goat anymore, right? He scored a hat trick against uh, Atletico Madrid, uh, a hat trick against Juventus. You know, the last time we saw our opposition crowd clap someone was for Ronaldo at, uh, away to Juventus, right? So I think it's always one of those things where we have this kind of revisionism theory with us, uh, where whenever either of them does something crazy good it's either well you know Ronaldo's still the GOAT or Messi's still the GOAT or yeah he's definitely the GOAT now because of this thing that he's just done I think it's so hard to call now until they both retire because you know we could say Ronaldo's the GOAT right now but Messi could go on and win three or four more Champions Leagues or he could win the Copa America and the World Cup with Argentina similarly if we call Messi the GOAT now if Ronaldo goes and wins the Champions League with Juventus and then wins you know a a World Cup up. like can you not call him the goat like it'd be it'd be hard right so i think there's you know you can talk about as a player and i think there are players like you know ronaldinho and zidane and ronaldo nine who are arguably as players you know purely better than you know people that we've seen in our lifetimes but you know, for example, Ronaldinho was at his peak for three years. Chris, uh, Ronaldo, uh, the the larger one, I don't want to call him Fat Ronaldo. I always think that's kind of mean. Um, he was only at his peak for maybe five, six years. So, if you talk about Ronaldo and Messi, the most impressive thing about them is their longevity. You know, these are guys that have been doing it since they were eighteen, and they haven't stopped. And they're 32, 31 and thirty-four respectively, which is insane. You could, and you could say the same thing too about you know guys like uh, Ronaldinho who. You know, maybe it's a shame. You probably he probably would have had a lot more uh, great, you know, top years in him had he taken a little bit more better care of himself and really was a little bit more focused on football than other things, partying and all that stuff. And made more power to him. Uh, he's a footballer making a ton of money. He's on top of the world, winning World Cups, winning everything there is. Um, but you know, you look at a guy like guys you just mentioned uh, uh, R nine, and then you could even make a point with uh, Baggio, who has the numbers. If you look at Baggio's numbers, you you say this guy scored a ton of goals as like a playmaking type player. But he could have had so much more if he was able to stay healthy. And again, if you look at, if you toss numbers aside just for a moment and you just look at the pure technical ability, the pure um, uh, the quality of the player, you can really kind of throw a bunch of different players in and have that conversation, which is always a, a great one. I think it's quite clear that the conversation now is Messi versus Ronaldo. Um, and of course, there's going to be people that say, "What about Maradona? What about uh, Ronaldo Nine? And rightfully so. There's always going to be that those people that you know are purists and they they have their reason for why they think other players are the best. But as you just alluded to, you know, Messi's 31, Ronaldo's what 34, and they're still at the top of their game. They're still at the peak of their game. They're not in the twilight of the career like we see with many others at this age. 34 years old for most players. Like now, they're kind of winding it down. Maybe getting that last big paycheck in China or going to uh, Major League Soccer and, you know, kind of, you know, uh, uh, putting a bow on a, on a great career. But these guys have so much more to give and it just goes to show you um, how impressive their careers have been and how much they really uh, put and dedicate into their craft. Yeah, I'm just trying to find a tweet that I put out the other day, which was kind of talking about a few players and um, what ages they were when they were doing certain things. I'm just going to find it now, right? So Thierry Henry, when he was 33, he was at the New York Red Bulls. Ronaldinho just turned 38 (laughs) Brazilian Ronaldo was at Milan your Milan at age 30 and and by then he wasn't really even a shadow of his he was a good player and but he wasn't like by 31 he was like 32 he was like oh he's out of football like he's done 
Like that's the that's the craziest thing about it, and that's one of the things you have to really look at with Ronaldo is not so much that again he's he's still performing the way he is, but for a guy that has dedicated his entire life to football and he's put himself in that same uh, he has us he's been able to accomplish much of what he's been able to accomplish based off the fact that he takes elite care of himself and you can t- talk the same a little bit about Ibrahimovic right a guy who's been in, is in impeccable shape he's strong he's he's always uh, you know working out training hard he really dedicates his life to this sport um, and there's it's unfortunate that there's some guys that injuries tend to derail them and uh, you know you know Kaká's one of them right you know we saw Cohen Ballon d'Or at his peak, Kaká was unplayable. The game against Manchester United, where he made two players collide, like there's so many things and so many fascinating ways to look at football. But getting back to the main, you know, how this conversation started about Messi, Ronaldo, it's there's still so much more in the tank for them that it's almost like you kind of want to put the conversation on hold because you're like these guys have what five more years at least. I mean, Ronaldo's going to play another World Cup. For sure, that's probably going to be his last major tournament, in my opinion. Um, and Messi's 31. To think Messi's only 31 and he's at doing this, like he's in scoring 50, 60 goals a year still, like that's unheard of. And it just goes to show you uh, what they uh, again, how special of a player they are, special players they are. And uh, let's just appreciate both of them. But um, yeah, Team Messi. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's it's certainly going to be a debate that rages on forever. I think um, the purists will choose one side, and the 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 guys that look at maybe trophies will will look at another. But they've both just got such crazy numbers in it, and it's crazy to me that you know, in if you see, uh, Thierry Henry, for example, is a guy that you know as an Arsenal fan I love so much, and someone who dominated the Premier League for so long, but. Even with his longevity, by the time he was 33, he was in the MLS. So to think that Messi and Ronaldo are still the top two guys, the two, top two dogs, it's uh, it's really something. We, we had a question here, uh, Matt, and our only question for today. It's from at uh, Comen Zoom. Uh, what do you think of under-23 teams joining Serie C? What is the best model for youth teams in the world? Well, uh, first off, thanks for the question. We, we uh, definitely appreciate it. Uh, and for as for the U twenty three teams, it's kind of one of those uh, cases where you the rest of the league is there's only few clubs that are, in my opinion, that are capable of bringing this you know system on. Uh, obviously, Juventus being one of them. I think you know Milan, Inter are probably uh, there's, there's a select f- a group of, of clubs that can actually do this effectively. Uh, it, Italian football is is uh, as a whole uh, is is very dysfunctional. There's a lot of um, you know things that are kind of like you kind of scratch your head about what's going on with it. Of course, uh, specifically in the lower tiers of Italian football, you got you know teams playing with eight nine guys every week, having to play certain guys every week, and there's all these weird cases uh, going on in the lower tiers that that are really unfortunate. You know, as much as we joke about like you know, oh they're playing like these coaches are coming in here, or the coaches didn't show up to the game, and now a teenager's coaching the team. Like it's pretty sad to see because it's, this is professional football, and a lot of these guys that are, are trying their best to to rise to the ranks and to make a name for themselves with a first team for the Juve's, for the Inters, for the Milans. Um, they're kind of not put in that proper position like we see in other countries like in England to make that necessary climb and to you know, to take the right steps and right precautions to get to the top of uh, top of football. So for, for me with the under 23 model, I wrote a little bit about it in my pinned tweet on Twitter for these football times um, as something I alluded to. There's uh, uh, many clubs in La Liga that do it. Um, I believe it's Real Madrid Castilla. I think I believe that's one. And then yeah. Barcelona do it. There's several teams that have done it a, a really good job of doing that. 
But the problem is that Italy's structure, the way they go about doing things, it's a little bit more slow and, and outdated. As much as we like to say that, you know, okay, well they're on, they're one of the first leagues that got VAR, right? So why is why can't they get a system like that going on in the lower tiers of having under twenty three teams, just like they do in some of the other top leagues that are on the world? But it's it's very complex. It's something that it's um, you know I was hopeful coming into the season and you know the season season prior that we would eventually see in Syria uh, for Syria because I think there's a direct benefit there, right? If you could have Milan, uh, a Milan under-23 team um, getting that consistent playing time against real competition at that age versus guys where, you know, they're playing against young kids who, you know, let's let's call it like it is, you know, uh, you know are, are good, maybe good footballers, but their career's not long-term in football, whereas with some of these other nations and other leagues, you know, they get, they're getting, they're, they're battle-tested at a young age is probably the best way to put it, so... Uh, it's very complex. It's very something that's kind of difficult to understand and, and kind of wrap my head around. But I'm hoping in the next couple of years that uh, Italian football can adopt something that's similar to what La Liga has and getting those teams to uh, you know have a have a healthy environment in the lower tiers with these U23 teams. And in return, that'll only help their main teams in, in the top flight, but also help uh, Italian footballs in general have a little more of a broader talent pool and a talent pool that's a little bit more ready and and as I just mentioned, battle-tested to uh, make that climb and to be effective, uh, you know, top division footballers. Yeah, I think it's hard to say what the best model is. I've been really interested in reading uh, recently, Matt, about potential partnerships with clubs. You know, this always goes back to kind of, you know, on Football Manager, how you could like create partnerships with clubs and and, and their clubs would, would give you their play, uh, players for like cheaper prices and stuff. And, you know, you didn't end day have a, 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 a partnership with Watford. They're, they're owned by the same mm. people. Uh, and I Bologna heard... and Mon- the Montreal Impact had that for a little bit too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I'm seeing, uh, you know, there's Circular uh, Bruges and uh, is it uh, Monaco, I believe. Um, there City is, Group has done it a little yeah, bit too. Yeah. yeah, so you've got Girona, uh, New York City, and Manchester City, obviously. Um, and there's, there's chat about... Ajax and, and Barcelona, Barcelona. Yeah. yeah and there's also I, I saw some quotes today from Per Mertesacker Arsenal's um, head of academy talking about potential potential partnership with Werder Bremen is this like are we in danger of you know um kind of colonialism in in football I think I saw someone on Twitter post it like it's because you know Ajax are in the quarterfinals of the Champions League if they are just becoming the 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 feeder pond for a team like Barcelona not only does it mean that their success is kind of hindered and limited it means that Barcelona's is suddenly extenuated because they suddenly have access to the best and brightest talents and if they want they can go and 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 make partnerships with you know a team from Scotland a team from Italy whatever and 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 suddenly they've got their their uh, tentacles in all these other pools and they can just pick and choose the best players when they want for what prices they kind of want um and then they continue to dominate it means that it's harder for say you know a team like atletico madrid who who 10 years ago weren't one of the best teams in europe who now are you're gonna it's gonna be harder to see those rises isn't it yeah i for me i i've never liked that. that's something the co-ownership deal has been excuse me the co-ownership system has been something that uh, was around in time football, pretty recently, I think they put all they put a, a stop to it. Twenty fifteen, I believe, but there was again something where like your players, clubs were buying like fifty percent rights of a player, 
And then, like, if that player wanted to transfer to another club, another player had to buy the rest of the rights to buy him fully. Like, it was kind of too complex. So uh, there's obviously going to be ways around that, right? As you're just, as we're talking about here, creating that synergy, creating that relationship on the market where, like, an Ajax, for example, who, for me, they don't need to go this route. I understand why they're doing it because we're seeing with Frankie De Jong, obviously, they, a talent factory as, as great as Ajax is. When they're making such deep runs in the Champions League, why would you want to strengthen another club? It's one thing if you're going to say, hey, like, we're going to come and sell players to the highest bidder. We're trying to build a sustainable model here. But for a, cl- uh, for a club and organization, I would like to call it with IHACs because it's so well run, that is a talent factory, you wonder, like, they're above this, in my opinion. They have such great history, such great tradition. And I get it. I get it why Ajax and Barcelona or Barcelona and Ajax are, are thinking about this because of that connection to Johan Cruyff. I get that. But at the same time, it's like you really don't want to see a team get kind of like, OK, well, you know, we, we're just going to go to Ajax. We're going to pluck a couple big players from them. And Ajax is a team that's kind of become known as a feeder club, as you just mentioned historically, they've done so much more than that. And you would love to see the teams like Ajax. Well, obviously, they're not going to be able to compete on the transfer market like with the Barcelonas and Real Madrid's of the world. But you'd like to see them become another power again. And you feel by, by doing something like this, you kind of sense that their kind of pro- their progression, as you just mentioned, is a little bit hindered. It's a little bit taken back. So for me, I, I understand the business side of it. It seems like a great model, right? You know, I have a great talent. He's not going to get minutes. Let me loan him to your team for two years, and then I know I have the first right of refusal to get him back. I, I get that, and it makes sense. But it's something that you would like to see just reserved for football manager and FIFA, and not so much regular football, because you want to see like if you're a team like Ajax, right, or your team like let's say, an Atalanta that got to the Champions League, right? They finally made it to a top four finish and they get to the Champions League. You would want to see them say, okay, are we just going to be content with getting here and then taking a step back and then becoming a feeder club? Or like, what's our next step here? No, we want to be able to continuously, okay, get to the Champions League. Okay, maybe make a little bit of a deeper run. Okay, maybe make even a deeper run. And B, have that longevity in the tournament. So you feel that with these types of relationships that could be being forged, it could hold certain teams back and, um, you know, it becomes one of those cases where for football, you understand the business side of it, but for the sanctity of the game, you really hope that it's just, okay, let's just let the best players play. Obviously, we all know where certain players want to go. You know, Eden Hazard has made a great point. He's like, Everyone wants to play for Real Madrid. Paul Pogba said the same thing. We all know what clubs these youngsters want to play for. But by making this known synergy, this known relationship, um, transfer relationship, uh, known around uh, around world football, I don't know. It's something that I'm not really too on board with, and not something that I'm too uh, too fond of myself. But again, of course, if 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 I had if I'm a, since I'm a Milan fan, if my, if me as a Milan fan were creating a relationship with like an Ajax or uh, a Borussia Dortmund, right, and I'm like. They're going to give us first shot at Jadon Sancho or uh, first shot at a Pulisic type uh, type quality. You know, it's, it's when the shoe's on the other foot, it's a little bit of a different situation. But if you're a Milan fan or as you are an Arsenal fan, you're thinking, man, Barcelona's just going to have their pick of the litter at Ajax whenever they want. Like, that's not going to help me, you know. So um, it's kind of a weird situation and something that I, I don't know. I, and quite frankly, I don't know. If, I don't trust UEFA 
to uh, deal with in the right way because they're very, very sketchy, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the opinion shared by many. I think there's, back to the original question, there's so many different strategies and ways you can implement kind of youth divisions. We've seen it, you know, in the uh, NBA, you've got kind of the NBA, the NBA G League, and then you've got the NCAA, which is the uh, college leagues, right? So i don't know it's 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 weird in football you know in england we've got the under 23 leagues which now yeah the early rounds they participate in the the league cup or whatever there's like another cup that they play in in uh, spain you've got the second division and the divisions below where the b teams of the um of the of the big clubs you know real madrid and barcelona that you mentioned can participate in i think that's probably the best way to do it and but i don't know at the same time in england would it would it be right to see the arsenal reserves playing in league one especially with you know uh playoff football and how exciting that becomes like i just don't i can't see that and i don't think it should be the right idea i think pep guardiola's called for it a lot but the championship in england you know there's a lot of money in that league still players still get paid big wages in the championship and the money behind it on the tv side is still relatively big you know the playoffs on a year long thing are quite big so there's that kind of thing in you know business where um whatever works in one country you can't just pick it up and take it and put it into another it doesn't it doesn't kind of transcend cultures and borders one thing is going to work for you know italy and spain and one thing is going to work for germany and england but i do think there's something interesting in the partnership side but i i think it's if it goes too far, it becomes that kind of um, big monster machine that you create if you're a Barcelona and you have like 10 different partnerships. Right. And, you know, just to not just to kind of wrap up this this question here again, once again, thank you for sending that in. Uh, the, the structure of a Serie C, like a pro with the lower tiers, it's really strange because there's a lot of unget unhealthy clubs, clubs that uh, are few you feel are getting bankrupt once a month, these these switching ownerships every every month or every season and there's a lot of chaos and a lot of just misunderstanding and or at least in my opinion there's a lot of misunderstanding about what's going on with the lower tiers of italian football from someone on the outside of it if you're you know an english fan or you obviously see as you just mentioned with a championship those leagues are a little bit more healthily structured and you the the, the pathway to a top club is a little bit different and a little bit more known but when you look at Lega Pro and Serie C, the lower tiers of Italian football, there's like 60-something teams. Like, you can't possibly have a league with that many teams separated with, you know, um, the, the, the disparaging amount of quality. There's a lot of things that need to be sorted out from the bottom, first and foremost, before I believe that Serie A can really try and have like an under-23 system. The whole league has to buy in too. And with the exception of... Uh, the Premier League, I don't see many leagues around there that can have an entire, you know, league that in the second, the entire league of 18 to 20 teams have those under 20, under 23 teams um, competing effectively. There's a lot, a lot that goes into it, and I'm sure you guys can find some sort of article on it as to why maybe it's more difficult to replicate um, than it sounds. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But as you mentioned, we'll wrap that one up, but it's uh, time for our player profile. Yes, so we're going to profile in this episode Nicolo Barella from Cagliari, the 22-year-old midfielder who we talked about off the top of the episode. Uh, had a great performance for Italy in their 2-0 win over Finland. He's been making headway into the national team picture under Mancini. 
uh, what can I say more about this guy? I actually profiled him in the Scouted Football Handbook 3 last year. I'll, I'll plug that on my account so you guys can check that out. But a midfielder who I, I believe is has benefited greatly from this additional season at Cagliari. There was people asking for him to make a big move because obviously they're thinking with their um, Azzurri cap on saying, well, he's got to make that big move, right? He's 21 years old. All the other 21, big time 21 year olds across the world are making those big moves to the big clubs. But I will say an additional year has benefited him tremendously well. He's been able to play with less pressure. Uh, he's been able to be himself. He's able to be a key man for a club. And, you know, what he brings and what he's going to bring, um, first off to the national team, as I alluded to uh, previously, is that balancing presence, a player who can do a little bit of everything for you. I've seen him play um, uh, extremely well at the base of a midfield. He's, he's Cagliari's main man, that's without question. But we're seeing the versatility he provides. He's uh, a little bit more of a robust midfielder. I'm not saying he's chunky or out of shape, but he's a player that um, is difficult to dispossess. He's difficult to get off the ball, but he has a really good eye for, uh, for a pass. He can do all those other things in the midfield side of things to help you out and to provide that balance and that stability that the Italian national team midfield has really lacked in recent memory. But for club, uh, he's a guy that it can be deployed in multiple positions, and I believe with, with, the, with the way he's going about his career, uh, his future definitely lies at a big club. Now, there's a lot going on around him. Uh, there were reports from Nicolo Scherra, who's one of the top Italian journalists, in my opinion, my most reliable guys I go to during the transfer market, and for really any transfer news that uh, I'm looking for, uh, he was saying that Arsenal had scouts at the game looking at Barello, and obviously know that's something that you would be like uh, take a liking to. Um, so it looks like the bidding is going to be starting at around 50 million euro, which uh, is the going rate for a top young midfielder. Uh, I think it's quite clear that the, the days of a guy getting a, a young talent uh, for 20 million, who's 21, 22, starting for the national team uh, and is ready to make that big step, um, you're not going to be able to get him for anything less than 40, 50. So uh, I'd say to say that you know, Cagliari definitely are going to cash in on him this summer, regardless if it's domestic, regardless if it's Premier League. Obviously, Premier League, there's a lot more money involved. So a team like Arsenal, a team like Chelsea, a team like um, Tottenham, just to name a few, can probably pay over asking price. But regardless, Barella is a, a well-versed, uh, multifaceted type midfielder who, again, can play across the midfield line. It uh, brings a little bit of everything. We saw his goal scoring touch, his ability to get on, um, get on the on the, gorse, on the um, score sheet, excuse me, and contribute in that sense makes him that much more valuable. Uh, and the beauty about it is, he's maybe not seeing the the potent big numbers from a midfielder that you look for, a guy who does have the capability to charge forward and make those contributions in the final third. But I think in the right system with a little bit more around him, and I think you would agree here, those numbers can definitely shoot up. I, I This is definitely not a player who we've seen the best of yet. And as an Italian national team supporter, it makes me very excited. So uh, listen, I would love to see him stay in Italy. I think that goes with that saying. I, I think that a lot of the Italian players that do get sold abroad... They find it a little bit difficult to adjust, um, with the exception, of course, of Marco Verratti, who at PSG, who's been at PSG for six years, by I think right now, um, he's been great uh, for PSG, all things considered, despite their shortcomings in the in the Champions League. So uh, I, I'm 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 hopeful that a big club in Italy will will pay the money to keep him here, but I do think he has that um the the, uh, the confidence, which is very key, as uh, Marco alluded to in the previous episode, uh, aside from just the ability and the talent. Uh, to make it at a big club and to be a really, uh, really successful footballer. Yeah, and I think that Napoli were obviously 
really interested in, in the previous window and, and as were um, Inter Milan. Uh, but it seems to be most of the noise is coming from out of Syria, which is quite interesting. And I think Marco mentioned in the last episode, we were talking about uh, Federico Chiesa and he was saying, you know, Italian players tend to want to stay in Italy and maybe we're seeing some of these guys breaking the mould. Obviously, Marco Verratti is a guy that has done that, but we're seeing more and more Italian players, maybe not move, but there's de- they're definitely getting more of the links abroad and but, there's but, no but smoke without Verratti, fire, right? Ver- Verratti was a little bit of a, weird, a, situ- a different situation compared to, of course, what we've seen with Jorginho at Chelsea, right? Jorginho's kind of been in that, and he's been like a top, like a, a, one of Napoli's top players for quite some time now, 26 years old, 20 seven years old like the move was was ready for him whereas with with Verratti he was at Pescara playing in Serie B to make like a 12 to 15 million euro move to PSG there wasn't a ton of pressure around that PSG were still building their their dynasty if you will domestic dynasty and within time Marco Verratti was able to allow his ability and talent to take over and to earn a starting position and be really become one of the best central midfielders in Europe. So that's the that's the difficult part. And he again we're all gonna look at fee, right? You know, I know Alex Kohlborg uh, mentioned it on his on his uh, appearance weeks and weeks ago. It it's the fee doesn't mean anything if you perform. But the fee also tends to wane on certain players because for a guy like Barella, right, if you're coming over from Italy, that's all you've ever known, and now all of a sudden a team like Chelsea or Arsenal come and they pay $60 million for you, the wages are high, you're playing in big stadiums with a lot of pressure for a big club that has big ambitions, the pressure is going to weigh on you, and having that unfamiliar territory, that unfamiliar surrounding, um, that usually works in a lot of favor for many uh, Italian internationals, uh, that could be a little bit of a situation. So beyond talent, you really have to do look at where the player is in terms of their personality and their terms of their mentality, right? Are they ready? Are they battle-tested for a big move with a lot of pressure? And that's going to come along with playing Champions League football if he does make a move to an Arsenal or Tottenham or a Chelsea, just to name a few. So I just got to point that out as well. Physically, from a technical standpoint and a football standpoint, Barella has uh, a, a quite a bit to offer in that midfield frame of his. But you really do have to look at the mentality side of things to see how they can adapt and cope to uh, a new culture, new language, all these different things, new tactics, new way of playing. And I'm not saying that Barella doesn't have that. I think what you've seen him uh, with the national team, he's got the personality, he's got the hunger, the confidence um, to be a, a success story. But that's just one of the things you really have to kind of take into consideration with players moving uh, out of the country and into a, a league they're not really familiar with. Mm, mm. Well, we thank you very much for your insight, especially those of uh, of the you know Arsenal fans, the Chelsea fans, the Tottenham fans, where they've been linked with Barella. Thank you very much, Matt, for that profile. But um, I think that's what we've uh, what we've got time for today. Uh, Matt, where can people find out more about you? Yeah, so you guys uh, make sure you guys are following me on Twitter at Matt underscore Santangelo. Uh, thank you for the support, and I'm gonna try and maybe change it up a little bit, aside from just the written side of things, where um, I do very much enjoy. But I may go into the um, down the uh, Alex Goldberg route, doing a little bit more video content, bringing something different to the timeline, and uh, so just keep an eye out on that in the couple uh, the coming weeks and uh, towards the tail end of the season. Yeah, I've been seeing some of your work on Periscope and it's looking good, man. Uh, congrats on that. Uh, you can find us at State of Play Pod, of course. Uh, that's on Twitter. If you want to email us, stateofplaypod at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow me at Pet Berisha on Twitter at P-E-T-B-E-R-I-S-H-A. Uh, thank you very much for listening. If you're commuting, uh, please have a great commute. If you're not, 
have fun doing whatever you're doing and uh, please have a nice day.